Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. Well, I've always done what I wanted to do, but what I want to do is the thing that we yeah. do. You know, yeah, we went through an acquisition and we don't have to do what we do, but we'd love it. Kieran and I, my co-founder, we still put yeah. in, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day because we absolutely love it. So for me, it was never the structure. It was very much about understanding what my strengths are and knowing how to use them effectively. So, for, you know, a great example of that is the old effective versus efficient mindset. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hello and welcome back today on the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm speaking with Mark Asquith. Mark is known as that British podcast guy. Mark is one of the United Kingdom's original podcasting experts. He's the managing director and co-founder of podcast hosting, analytics, and monetization platform Captivate.fm, which is where we host our podcast as well. It was acquired by Global in 2021 and is known worldwide as an insightful, thought-provoking, and actionable podcast industry keynote speaker. Mark has educated on podcasting and delivered thought-provoking leadership at events, including Podcast Movement, PodFest, Harvard Sound Education, and many more. His focus is on helping people to achieve their own podcasting goals and improving the podcasting industry for the long term. Mark, thanks for joining me on the Mindful Money Podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. Good to be around. And I note an accent. Mark, where do you call home? Oh, I'm from England, right in the center. Well, I'm from a place called Barnsley, which is a really broad accent, so... I have to dumb it down for interviews, otherwise you wouldn't understand what I was saying. But we live in between Manchester and, and the hills, so we're in the hills of Yorkshire. So cricket or football? Golf. Golf? <laughs> I'm no a golf kidding. guy, okay. yeah. Cricket, I was brought up in like a cricket environment and it wasn't for me. And then football, I used to live like about a mile from the, the Barnsley football ground. So I've had, my, I've had my fair share of disappointments with that. So I exited early. <laughs> well, my son adopted Man City as his team. Like, I don't know, 10 years ago when he was like six years old, not knowing that it was the highest budget. So I just was curious if that might be an interest. <laughs> so I'm just curious. Oh, I had a little brother that did that. <laughs> you had a little brother that did that? Yeah. He was. He supported Manchester United when they were winning. <laughs> oh, yeah. When they were winning. Yeah. Fair weather. So when did you start learning about money and business? And did you have lessons growing up? I think the biggest lesson that you can have in money is not having any. That's, the, you know, there's only one thing that can really teach you you know, about money. And that's when you've got 
just about enough of it and sometimes not enough of it. So that was just a lesson from my life pretty early on. You know, we, I don't come from an affluent background, come from a mining village up here in Yorkshire, which is, he was very poor in the 80s. And I was born in 82. I remember the miners' strike. I remember, you know, people scrambling for food. I remember picket lines. I remember people not being able to eat. And, you know, so that was sort of my first relationship, I guess, with money. So there's no real lessons other than when you have it, don't be crazy with it. And it's interesting when I did the TEDx talk, yeah, well, I don't know, four years ago now, and it was that was sort of the theme of it. It wasn't. It was sort of a bait and a switch, actually. It looked like it was the theme of it until later. And it, money, I've got a funny relationship with money. It's interesting. But the earliest lesson and, you know, the earliest memory of it was just genuinely it being scarce, yeah. you know? It was, yeah, it's, it's been an in, interesting influence throughout my, my 40 years so far. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I've noted about many of the people that I've chatted with is if you grew up with it, it's like it wasn't a thing that you chased or a thing that you thought about or a thing that was even an issue. But if you didn't grow up with it, it became an issue and you learned about it and you tried and you started chasing. And But then often we learn lessons chasing it as well, right? So g- give us an idea, you know, just in terms of background, you know, what you were doing before you got into podcast or media, because I don't think you started off in podcasting. It's more like a media. Yeah. So I, I started working for myself a when I was 21, which was interesting. This is way before podcasting. This is 2003. I think RSS wasn't invented till I don't know, maybe around then, maybe 2004, 2005. I remember it starting RSS 1.0. And it was my background was always talking. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a skill. So I've always been reasonably confident. I'm pretty introverted, actually, even though I speak all over the world and I've been on countless podcasts and playing bands and I'm on stages, but I am actually really introverted. I've got like a fuel tank full of extroverts. And once that's dwindled, like if you ever see me at a conference, I disappear for like an hour at a time just to refill that glass. So it's my background has always been in kind of communication, just chatting to people and getting to know people. And I, you know, I didn't do college, didn't do university, didn't do any of that. It was all too a little bit slow. I'm like probably a, a year into ADHD diagnosis. So my brain's always been off. I've always, and it's been a real strength. You know, I, I've always, my brain's moved so quickly that I couldn't keep college was just pointless because it was too slow. And the same with university. So I quit my job because it was boring and didn't like the people. It just wasn't, they were just managers for the sake of it. And so my background became training. I used to train people. So it's, I'd go do your defense, you know, I'd go and train banks on systems and train the air force on systems and all sorts of things. This is like age 22 years old, you know, 23 years old, which then got me into coding. I got into building stuff. You'll see if, if you know, we're talking on the video and for anyone listening to the podcast, there's a, a 2010 Geddy Lee jazz bass behind me, which was the thing that led me to coding because I was in bands and there were friends that were, I was in IT doing training and there were sort of adjacent friends that were sort of into web coding and we needed a website for the band, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, wait a sec, actually, I can probably do it myself rather than waiting for people, which led me to coding. Bring those two things together, you know, being a communicator, being someone that's been on stages, being someone that has been, I suppose, in IT, you know, I'm a very lucky generation. You know, 82 was a really good time to be born for tech because there wasn't that much of it until there was. And I've got a foot in both camps, so I was really fortunate. So when I put all those things together, I sort of I became this owner of this design and digital agency. We scaled it. We did well with it. It was nice. And I was sort of the guy that always knew plenty about plenty, if that makes sense, which led me to podcasting eventually. So was was it more a pull to the digital agency or was it a push out of the old job? And what was sort of the last straw? What was it that gave you that final push? This is a deep rabbit hole. Again, <laughs> this I'm not this sounds like I'm promoting TEDx. I am really not. I've not spoken about that for about two years, but this is sort of what I did the TEDx talk on. It was really about the talk is called Choose Happiness, Choose Control. 
And if you think about a story, you know, there's some Joseph Campbell books behind me. There's some, you know, Stephen King on writing books. It's all about the art of storytelling. I had an inciting incident, which was someone, I may as well tell the story. I was like 10 years old, I think, just discovering girls, just discovering, you know, did I want to be popular? Probably not very good at that. So, but what did I want to do? Well, I didn't want to be someone that stood out as being unpopular. So it was really important at that age. You know, it's like your formative years to, to sort of fit in and just have a group of people. So I turned, I think it was 11, just as I went to this school disco and we turned up at this little event, you know, they have these little, you know, balls at the schools and I showed up and we were all in line for these hot dogs and these drinks and so on and so forth. And I was sort of, if you imagine two groups of people in a line, I was the connecting person between my friends in front of me and some other friends behind me. And the person connecting the groups together was me. And on the other side, right next to me connecting the other group was this girl that I just had a massive crush on. So we end up in this line. We end up basically going down the line asking for this hot dog. And every school disco for years... I'm talking all of my time at school. All these hot dogs had just been free, free, free. This one wasn't. So she gave me the hot dog and she said, that's 30 cents. So I thought, yeah, about 20 pence. Uh, I just didn't have it. Literally had no money. You know, back to what we said earlier. So I had to give it in front of everyone. I had to give it back in front of everyone. Like she took it off me. And that was my inciting incident, which taught me that, you know, I wanted to chase money. But actually, you know, we'll probably get to this. Money wasn't the thing I wanted to chase. And so to answer the question about the job... It was actually the pursuit of the thing that I was really interested in that led me to doing, and the overlying ADHD as well, led me to trying so many things. And the thing that I was seeking, like, just kind of let me preface this with, when I was 21, I was earning 20 grand, 21 grand. When I was 21 and a half, I was earning 190 through freelancing. And then when I was 22 maybe 23, I was back to earning 20 grand because I'd given that money up. Now, the reason I say that is there was no push, there was no pull. For me, it was dodging. And what I was dodging was people being able to control what I did. And so I was, you know, I was earning 20, I don't know, 20 or grand. And then I started earning this 190, 195 grand. You know, I remember one, I, they wanted, a client wanted me to invoice them up front 42,000 pound and just paid it. And then I was like, wait a second, this is perfect. Problem is, they said, you've got to be on site doing this thing. We don't need you. We're not even ready for you yet, but you've got to drive three hours each way and you've got to be on site. And, you know, if we need you, we need you, but you still got to be there. I was like, well, this is silly. What if I had a kid? You know, what a silly thing. And that's when I set my stall out. I said to myself, look, I, well, you know, we'll have kids one day. I do want kids. And the last thing I want to do is someone to say to me, I have bought your time. Doesn't matter how much it is. I've bought your time so you can't go to that concert. You can't go to that football match. You can't do this. And so I, I quit. I just walked. I said, that's it. I'm done. You know, worked the month and, and I was out. And it was never a push or a pull. It was always a, will this situation hand over control to someone that is frankly just going through a tick box exercise because someone else who controls their life has said that they've got to do it and the cascading elements above them and so on and so forth are, are happening at a higher level. I thought this is ridiculous. So that's why that was, yeah, no push, no pull. I think that the thing you're pointing to is the idea of, well, it's control, but it's the idea of, you know, autonomy. And one of the things we talk about when we talk about earning money is exactly what you're saying is the reason it's a good idea for people to have their own business or their own practice or their own side hustle or whatever is it gives them a sense of that control and what's possible, even if there's less money involved. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you make 20 grand 
that's harder to live on today than it was, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But if you make 30 grand or 40 grand, but you get to live the life, your authentic life, do the things you want to do, you have time control, then wow, right? It's that's fantastic. But if you make 400 grand and you have to, you're the banker, right? You got to go in at 8 a.m. You got to be there till 7 p.m. You don't have any time for family. You got no time to build something. You got no time for friends. You got no time for anything but work. I don't know if that's not fun. I, I totally see what you're doing. So when did you actually launch the digital agency? 2005, I want to say we launched. It went through a number of iterations and so on. And we built it up from there. Yeah, we did that for about 12 years, which was interesting. And it was funny because getting me into podcasting, it got me into podcasting, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I, I do a lot of startup mentoring. I, I'm known for podcasting. But actually, I am in podcasting and I'm that's what I do every single day. But it's what I really do is build tech. And I make that tech make money. And it just happens that that's in podcasting. It didn't start out that way, though. So first you became known as the British podcast guy, right? So how'd you get known as the British podcast guy? Well, I, I was actually known for doing startup mentoring and all sorts before that, and which then led me to podcasting because I was starting my own podcast because people asked me advice. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to record it. So I'll guess what? I'm going to start a podcast, which then led to all sorts of other things and a few other things going on. The, the reason I got the that British podcast guy Monica was because I was just the only British podcast person there. That was quite literally it. You know, I was probably, well, I started my first podcast in 2012 with Gaz. We did pop culture stuff. And about six months later, I started my own sort of startup businessy podcast called Excellence Expector, which is inspired by a Steve Jobs quote. And the notion of that was that we, certainly people like me, you know, whenever I was coaching, so I don't do coaching anymore, but when I used to do coaching for people, I'd always tell people that, you know, when you're building a business and when you're doing something that you enjoy doing, you hold yourself to a standard that's much higher. And so when you give your perceived 70%, you're actually delivering 95% of what anyone else would do because you hold yourself to a standard of excellence and it's expected. So I started that up. And by going out to speak at podcast movement and new media Europe when it was in Manchester, like four, five, six miles away, just there was no one else. There was probably like maybe Ant McGinley, there was maybe Colgray and a couple of those, but I was the one on stage speaking and people would say, have you spoken to Mark? Which one's Mark? It's that British guy. Oh, okay. And that's how it came about. I mean, I was doing, Jared at Podcast Movement, one of the founders, he used to joke with me that I was like breaking international law or something because I was there that often. Like I was clearly not sticking to the visa limits. I'm, I clearly was, if anyone was listening in. But it was, you know, I'd get stopped. <laughs> I was getting stopped by Border Patrol every time because I was... I was in the US that often and it was a lot of people saying that this sounds like a digression, but it's not. It's to in order to make anything, whether it's product, whether it's money, whether it's control, success, happiness, diversity, whatever you want to build, you've got to be there while this thing is developing. You know, so I was at a, I'd be at Swedesboro, New Jersey in the holiday Inn with 40 people having flown from England to go do that conference. And people said, why the heck are you doing that? That's crazy. And it's not. I was, you know, now I know everyone. And it, it's because I was there. And it, that's where the British podcast guy came from. And then when we launched Captivate, and we already had a couple of businesses in podcasting, but when we launched Captivate, it's, I, we didn't do anything marketing. It was just like, oh, Mark and Kieran are launching this new hosting platform. We're going to buy it. We're going to sign up for it. Because I'd done thousands and thousands of hours in it. So that's where the British podcast guy thing came from. And it, it does directly pertain to like a genuine approach to building business, you know, just being out the old school way yeah. and, you know, walking the floors. I'm curious, how is the, you've gone through lots of different phases. How, just out of curiosity, how many podcasts have you hosted personally? Oh, episodes, 1400, easily. Yeah, lots. Yeah, lots. yeah. How, and then you transitioned in sort of an industry leader out of 
you don't host a podcast anymore, do you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do a few. Yeah, I've got a pop culture one called Spark Rebellion, which we do Star Wars stuff. And I've also got a a podcast education one called the Podcast Accelerator, which is nice. So in all the different iterations, how has your definition of success changed in these different stages? Oh, it hasn't. It's always been the same. You know, it's just about doing what you want to do when you want to do it for me. You know, I take my little girl swimming on a Thursday. Who asks where I am? You know, it doesn't matter, you know, because they know, you know, even though we got acquired by Global and now theoretically we're back to having jobs, we're, we're, we're trusted, you know, it's not like it used to be where, you know, you've got to put the eight hours in, you know, we'll put 10 hours in, we'll put 12 hours in, but we might do six on a morning and six on a night. And that, the beauty of that, it's the perfect marriage of control and yeah. loving what you do. Because you never stop wanting, if you love what you do, you never right. stop wanting to do the 12 hours. It's just, you want to do your 12 hours, if that makes sense. So no, the, the definition of success has, has really not changed. It, it, it's a very strict thing for me. Yeah, to the point yeah. that I've kicked clients off platforms. I've gotten rid of plenty of customers, you know? And I, in fact, the first thing that got me into this, into into sort of the online world, if you like, was... I wrote a piece for a big publication about what it's like to run an agency. And it was a big 11,000 word piece. And I spent ages and ages and ages on it. And they didn't publish it in the end. They went another direction. I was like, you know what? Why would I waste my time with you guys? I'm going to publish it myself. And inside, there was a a whole subsection on when you, especially if you're a service-based business, there is a misconception that if you work for yourself, you don't have a boss. But actually, if you let them, every client tries to become your boss. And that you've got to be firm on. So that's why that definition of success has not changed. That's always been my metric, you know, does this thing or this decision or this person cross that line? And if it doesn't, you can stay. And if it does, you know, we leave. So does making money or building something cool or family time, do those things factor in as sort of a guiding light ever? Or is it always, hey, now I want to do this. Now I want to do this. Now I want to do this. And is it, you know, how do you maintain some kind of a, some kind of a discipline structure if it's, I just want to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it? A discipline structure for someone with ADHD is wildly overrated. (laughs) It is completely the latter. I do, I've always done what I wanted to do, but what I want to do is the thing that we do. You know, yeah, we went through an acquisition and we don't have to do what we do, but we'd love it. Kieran and I, my co-founder, we still put in, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day because we absolutely love it. So for me, it was never the structure. It was very much about understanding what my strengths are and knowing how to use them effectively. So, you know, a great example of that is the old effective versus efficient mindset. You know, I've got ADHD and my brain's all over the place, but guess what? It's brilliant at ideas. That's why Captivate has got... Anything you can think of has come from there, like quite literally everything, because I'm just, I don't stop. You know, I've got like three ideas just from talking here. You know, what can we make this easier? What can we do? And so what I understood pretty early on about myself was that it was pointless me trying to be efficient. You know, it was, it was, and which is generally leads to structure. Efficiency equals structure. Structure equals efficiency. My brain doesn't work like that. I can create a thousand to-do lists. I can time block. I can get a, a tomato-shaped timer and do Pomodoro. I can do absolute. I can read the four-hour work week till Tim Ferriss is coming out my eyeballs. None of it will matter. What I've got to do is say, I'm probably going to be good for an hour and then I'm going to want to do something else. What is the thing that is going to be most effective for my business in that one hour? And I'll do that. And, you know, 
there has been days in the past, certainly in the agency days, where I didn't do anything but that one hour. I was a lot younger than I'd not, not sort of handled it, not come to terms with it so much. And it was, I'd just do the one hour. But that one hour would get us a 12, 13 grand a month retainer. And it was, that was it. That's all I needed to do. That was plenty. So it, for me, it was, you know, everyone said you need structure. You've got to have this. I'll tell you the biggest misconception in all business and entrepreneurship, morning routines. It's pointless. It is pointless for someone who is like me. Not for everyone. But for someone with ADHD, I'm going to wake up and I might want to go running. I'm going to wake up. I might want to go hit some golf balls. I might just want to have a pile of breakfast and chill. I might want to write something. We just do not know. So what happens is that, you know, we were saying before we were recording, I've you know cleared all of my business books. They're in the attic now. I don't read it. I don't want to touch them. I'm going to read Star Wars. It's going to be brilliant. I'm going to read some more Stephen King. It's going to be ace. I'm going to read some Joseph Campbell. It's going to be brilliant. I, I love doing all that stuff because... Generally, most business books teach you how to do the thing that has worked for that person. Now, if I wrote a book about that, it wouldn't... Right. People would right. be like, this guy is crazy. So it's... Yeah, structure is such a weird thing when it is someone else telling you what the structure should... And I'll tell you this straight as well. I know a lot of entrepreneurs and what they say they do, having shared houses with them, is not what they do. And so it's... You know, we talked earlier about authenticity, but that's become a sales term online, you know? So I said, that's another rabbit hole, but there's, yeah, the structure for me never worked. It was about impact and it was about, you know, laser sighting a a sniper shot of action per day. And don't get me wrong. I do get a lot of other things done. the, The ideas never stop coming and that's what I do. That's my job. I mean, it sounds to me like the simplest thing to start with is just know who you are know what you need and then sort of build on top of that. Like that's, if you build on someone else's book or idea about how something's going to go, it's never going to work. You got to know how you work and how you're going to, I'm a fan of the morning routine, but it's, you know, so that's just me. I'm very, you know, list oriented, but it's interesting to have a conversation with somebody that's, you're a lot more like my brother. My brother's was way more just whatever's the sense of the moment, that's what he's going to do. Right. And he was totally successful doing it that way. So how do you think podcasting shifted from a bunch of people doing podcasts to you know, an industry like it's, there's a lot of money in podcasting. There's a lot of equipment. There's a lot of, you know, there is structure behind it now. How did that happen? Podcasting turned into an industry when people like my mum understood that it was all right to get what you wanted when you wanted it as enabled by technology. So there was a few different things that came together in my mind that allowed podcasting to become the industry. The first one was that it didn't matter that RSS feeds existed. Like my mum doesn't care. I run a company that builds RSS feeds. That's what we do. You know, that's it. Plain and simple. My mum doesn't care. She'll just say, I listened to that new podcast. Did you? Yep. Oh, good. You know, how did it get delivered, mum? Was it via RSS 2.0? What namespace were you looking at? She doesn't care. You know, and so that was the first thing. And that was brought about by a few preceding factors, which led, I use my mum as the, the quote unquote avatar because she's such a perfect example of it. So the things that happened in my mind were this. Uber happened. So I could go from A to B, and I didn't need to look up from my phone. That was it. I could just I had to do the walking for a cab. Now the taxi came to me. So that was the first thing, and that was the on-demand sort of uh, instigator, if you like, for the mass populace, because Uber came to Barnsley, a mining town in the north of England that no one has heard of, you know? So that, whereas, you know, let's think Deliveroo. We still don't have Deliveroo in Barnsley. Yeah, that's fine. You know, we had it in London, but we didn't have it in Barnsley. Not everything got to people like my mum. So that was the first thing. 
The second thing was that people stopped sending through mail their Netflix DVDs. And instead, they were able to press their remote, their little zapper on the TV, and they get the thing. What do I want to watch today? I don't know. I don't have to be in front of the TV. And I'm just, oh, wow, look at these TV shows. They're now being, they've been, what's this binge? They're now being dropped all at once. There's a series. I don't have to go to the store and buy a box set. This is, so that was a second thing from a tech perspective that enabled my mum to go away a second, actually. This TV here, I know how to work. If I pick my phone up, I can log into Netflix and the interface is exactly the same. And if I press the thing that's normally highlighted on my TV, I can watch the thing that I like whenever I want it. And then someone called Spotify came along and went, you can do that with audio as well. Not podcasts. I don't want to, if anyone's listening to this, it's an OG podcaster. I don't want you to break out in sweats. They did not invent podcasting, but what they did do is they said, streaming exists. So all that radio stuff, just get it when you want it, you know? So it was those things for me that enabled the mass population to start thinking about it. Plus, I do think that, I think there's a different set of subsets, which I know is very obvious phrasing, but there's a range of sets of people within podcasting that each found podcasting together. You've got your entrepreneurs, you know, someone like John Lee Dumas at EO Fire, who's going on about the golden age of podcasting. And that opened up that market, you know, and people like Ducker and Pat and all these kind of people over here doing what they did. Ramit and all, everyone, everyone that was like personal brand. And let's put Gary V right at the top of that as the figurehead of it, you know? So that was that market covered. And then you had like Heinz Ward, you know, the NFL guy. He did a podcast and it didn't last for very long, but oh my word, look, there's a sports podcast. And ESPN, you know, Jay Soderbergh did the ESPN network, which opened up all this sort of stuff. And then Serial threw this big banner around it and got the people that wanted stories involved, you know? And a lot of people won't like that. A lot of the OGs were like, Serial didn't invent podcasting. No, it didn't, but it got a lot of press. So it was, the, I know that's a long answer, but it was those three things. And then I do also think that, so I do a range of interviews like this, and there are always two types of people. There are the people that use podcasting to build something, or there are people that build podcasts. There's only those two types of people. And there's nothing wrong with either. You know, I do both. I've got a podcast that I build because I love talking about Star Wars and pop culture and I get free invites to Comic Cons. It's amazing. I get merch. I get stuff sent. Brilliant. But I also use the Podcast Accelerator to make sure people know that I know a little bit about podcasting. And, you know, people like Pat Flynn's a great example of this one. He will build a podcast because it's a channel of content marketing. Whereas someone like Aaron Mankey, who's building law, he goes on to get a TV deal with Amazon and so on and so forth. Like that podcast is the product. And I think the those two types of people existing bring a different set of audience together. And it just so happened that they started coming together at the same time. And then we got a pandemic, you know, and suddenly everything is, yeah, it did. It did. Everything was, the creation certainly was accelerated. I don't know about the consumption. I'd have to look at the data on that, but the consumption probably, I don't know, maybe wavered because of the commuting and then people figured out new routines. So I would imagine it was a little tumultuous. And it's now we live in this on-demand world. You know, I can get, I, I, last night I got some noodles from a place that's like a drive through place. It's amazing. And I just did it on Deliveroo on my phone. And it's, 
you know, that's the world we live in. So yeah, long answer, I realize, but to sort of just quickly touch on the industry side of it, why has it become an industry? It's because the egg and the chicken both arrived within weeks of each other. You know, the egg turned up and it's the, look at us, we're creating stuff. And then Universal and so on started sponsoring things like cereal. And I remember driving back home from London in 2016 and hearing there's a trailer for a DiCaprio movie on cereal. Lying fire. Are you kidding me? And then the startup crew got involved and the VCs got involved and, you know, the big brands. So it's, yeah, that perpetuated from there. But yeah, that's a long answer, but that's what I think happened. What do you think that, I mean, if, if you could forecast, if you could say, okay, podcasts 10 years from now, what will change? I mean, you're designing the t- software and the technology, so I hope you have an idea. Oh, I've got a lot of ideas. It's what perspective to take it from. Right, right, right. Someone will tell you nothing will change. There'll be people that tell you nothing will change. You know, podcasting will always deliver via RSS feeds and it will, if it's not a podcast, that's rubbish, you know, because guess what? I watch Star Wars on Disney Plus now, but you know, it's still a movie just because it's not on VHS. So it's, that's one element of it. But in terms of the industry, what I think will begin to happen is, in fact, it's already happened. I wrote a piece three years ago on this called Indie versus Big Podcasting and why, you know, basically why we don't need to worry because podcasting's fractured already. It, podcasting as we know podcasting is still 99% the 99%. You know, it's us doing what we do, getting some downloads, that's cool. You know, probably monetizing in a bit of a niche or just getting Comic Con tickets because it's badass. Doing whatever we want to do, all right? That's just podcasting. And that's all right because it's either, again, back to what we said earlier, it's either a content marketing channel and you're not, you wouldn't be too hard on your SEO. You'd just work at it. You wouldn't be too hard on your blogging or your YouTube content or your short form video content or your LinkedIn content. You would just keep working on it. And podcasting is a marketing channel for a lot of those people. Or it's something that we do because we like doing it. Like I like playing golf. I'm not going to be too hard on my golf because I'm crap at it. I'm going to be, you know, I'll just still play it because I enjoy it. So that part of podcasting will just remain. And that's the 99%. And what's already happened is that podcasting has just become a catch-all name for media that is on demand and delivered via audio. That's fine. Again, I wrote a piece about this in 2018. Why Spotify, why Anchor maybe isn't the villain in podcasting. I got hammered, like trolled big time by some properly, you know, quote-unquote top people in the industry who said, oh, but I said in the piece, podcasts don't need to be delivered via RSS feed. That's it. And I got, you know, literally got hammered. And I was like, well, we'll see. We will see. And sure enough, Spotify doesn't need to deliver its podcast via RSS feed. And yeah, there'll be a thousand people who say, well, it's not a podcast then. But guess what? They don't pay for the advertising. My mum does when she listens to the thing that's not really a podcast, but is a podcast because she thinks it's a podcast because she pressed play on Spotify. So that's the difference is that part of podcasting, the 1% will become the 2%. It will become the 3%. And that is not podcasting as it once was. That is podcasting that's broken through from the chrysalis. It's broken out into the world and it's just media. It's just audio. It's just great stories that are delivered and can be taken on demand by anyone. And so that I think will be the big fracture that continues to happen. I think the industry will shrink a little bit. We're starting to see less money flying around in industry. Acquisitions are less hot. We're seeing uh, CPMs are holding, you know, advertising rates seem to be holding, but I think personally advertising are going to want some more genuine metrics than just impressions because, you know, try selling three campaigns to the board, you know, when the second one failed and just gave us impressions, but no decent ROI, you know, that's a difficult sell for brands. 
I think the tech will sort of evolve, but I think it's a difficult one, this, because it's evolving to a degree into more of an idealistic style of tech. So what I mean by that is there is a lot of innovation going on in podcasting 2.0, which is like how we'd love podcasting to be. But the vast majority of where the money is, I don't think we'll use that tech, if that makes sense. You know, so the big players at Wondery, do they really care whether you can do value for value and send sats around via, you know, via Web3? Nope. They just want to keep selling their advertising. So I think the tech's a funny one. You know, the tech is a funny one. But yeah, I think that's where the industry will get headed. And I think we'll start to see more. We see this a lot already, but like universal IP. So people like Aaron Mankey, who's taken law and developed it into the law network of podcasts, but also the law TV show and the movies that people are doing from podcasts and so on. And I think we'll see creators start to think about like what Q code does, you know, start to think about actually let's cast this voice drama. But if it goes to TV show, who would we really want to play that part? And can we get them for just the audio version of it? And, you know, which is what we're starting to see with people like you, Kurt. So yeah, there's lots more to it, but that's sort of the high, high-ish level. So you kind of said in there that the podcasting universe is shrinking a little bit now. Is there, you're talking about the tech universe or you're talking about the number of podcasts? I think the overall readiness to get involved regardless of outcome. I worded that very carefully. So what I mean by that is on the tech side, you know, VCs, you know, funds, they're much less likely now to take a bet on tech. And when they are taking a bet on tech, they seem to be taking a bet on profitable tech. They're not taking a bet on revenue. They're not taking a bet on hockey stick growth. Right. They're taking a bet on profit. Actually, is this sustainable as an industry? So that's the first part of the tech side. And by the way, that's happening everywhere. I mean, that that's, you know, rising yeah, interest rates that affects that across the board. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that even from like the accelerator world, you know, everything from people raising series A and series B down to people doing pre-seed, like everything seems to have got harder, which I totally get. It's the, it's the world right now. The number of podcasts I don't see slowing down. So there's room. There's room for us to start one. I mean, there's room for people to oh. start one. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's a different question. Yeah. Very quickly finish that last bit off. Right. So basically the podcast industry right now has a tendency to basically just say you shouldn't start a podcast if you're not going to carry on with a podcast, which is complete rubbish. You know? Yeah. There might be tens of thousands and millions of dead podcasts out there, but who cares? Like there's loads of dead YouTube channels. Like I can't go watch Firefly anymore or Jericho on TV. That's done. It's finished. Like, what am I going to do? The Godfather's not been remade. It's done. So the better not remake the Godfather. So... <laughs> The point is, you know, that's all right. We want people to keep doing it. I'm going to create a YouTube channel about my new golf sim that I'm building. So I'm going to, I don't care how many YouTube channels there are, how many blogs there are, any of that sort of stuff. But there's a lot of people in the industry of podcasting that will say, you know, unless you're consistent and you publish every single week until you're 72 years old, you shouldn't start a podcast. And that's absolute rubbish. Now, when it comes to, should you start a podcast? Is there room for starting a podcast? Like, of course there is. What are the four million with maybe a million of them active right now? 50 odd million YouTube channels. Is that what it is? 200, maybe 300 million blogs. You know, it's a big world and people like what they like. And you will, you can always build an audience. You can always build an audience. The thing you've got to do about building audiences, back to what got me that British podcast guy title. You've just got to be around. 
you've just got to like it, you know? So of course, I think everyone should do it. Yeah, yeah. Build the tribe up. And I think just... The opportunity in podcasting, and it has been an opportunity for such a long time, and I don't think it will go away, is just to genuinely be yourself. Like, if you're an entrepreneur, let's use this great example. You don't have to be Gary Vee, all right? Gary Vee is Gary Vee, and it, when you, you see him on his videos, he's Gary Vee. When you see him in real life, he's Gary Vee. You go, you eat with him, you drink with him. He's the same man as you see there, you know, because he loves it and he believes it. And I, so the point that I'm getting to with that is that a lot of people will go into podcasting and think to themselves, I've got to build a tribe. I've got to be myself. But the myself is not genuine. It's not the genuine authenticity. It's the thing that they think works because they've seen it elsewhere. Now, the problem with that is it becomes a job. It's hard to maintain. It's a facade. The tank empties really quickly. And then you die a death because you can't do it. So we're not taught to do that. We're not That's taught right. to do that. You know, we're never taught. To, we're taught to be one of 20 in a class or 40 in a class these days. We're taught to be someone at college that gets grades that are the same as other people. We're taught to all read the same books and that's, there's nothing wrong with that because you get ideas from each of them. But what no one ever tells us is take the book, whatever the book is, let's say the one thing by Gary Keller, take whatever that book is. All right. Forget all those pages, except for that half a paragraph that you can take and assimilate into the other stuff that you do. Do that a thousand times and you get your own way. You get your own routine without a routine in my case. You develop your own intuition. And when it comes to podcasting, you have to be able to turn on the microphone and yeah, you've got to plan it. Yeah, you've got to outline your questions, but you've got a thousand questions and look how much I talk. You know, it's you're not always going to get to them. So when you start a podcast, you have got to be able to go. You've got to be able to go. And the only way to do that, the only way to be able to turn on the microphone and go or to get on a stage and go you know, if someone said to me, Mark, it's six o'clock UK time. Can he do a 50 minute talk on podcasting or startups or whatever? Now, with no slides, I will be able to do it because I love it. So if you can do that, you will never get bored of it. And you will always find the people because this comes over. Look how animated I am as I'm moving, I'm talking and that a lot of people don't. That comes across. So I think to kind of finish that bit off, I think it's the only way to succeed in anything is to be very good at it. That's it. There's no Your money comes from being very good at something. And the only way you can become good at something is by becoming confident in that thing. And the only way you can become confident is to become competent in it. And the only way to become competent is, so that, is for it to be the thing that you do all the time without needing to think about doing the thing. You know, you've got to enjoy it. Right. You've got to love it. So it's, there's room for everyone. <laughs> I love that, uh, that stack you know, from love to competence, to confidence, to success. I think that's a fantastic stack. If someone was listening today and said, yeah, I'm thinking about writing this podcast, you know, Mark says it's possible. There's lots of room. I think I have a good idea for it, but they're listening to all these gurus. Like I was really lucky to find Harry to help me, you know, sort of put in a mm. voice what it was I wanted to talk about. Right. But there's so many other voices out there that I had to ignore. So what's like the one nugget, you know, got, someone's got an idea, they want to pursue it. What would you tell them? What's the one positive thing that they should do? And then what is some of the stuff they're hearing that they can just ignore? Oh, I think anytime a guru's got a course on sale, you can ignore that. Yes. Just thank you for that. You know, <laughs> don't want to, you caught, there's no way on earth that your course is down to 97 bucks from about three grand today only. Not a chance, no chance. We all know that works. We've all read the book that says teach scarcity. We've all been there. Silly. So that's the first thing. Ignore that one. But I think 
podcasting has it's crested the wave of needing things like that. It's popular enough now that there's enough free resource out there. You know, there's I've got a microphone somewhere in this room that I can plug into this computer or into my phone or whatever. And I can it's a good mic for like eighty bucks. It's a, a ATR and a Sam. I've got like a thousand, but you plug them in. They don't cost any money, and that's the mic sorted. And it sounds just as good as this one does. So you know, you don't need a course on that. That's fine. You're good. Just do some Googling and find that thing. And don't worry about what everyone else likes or dislikes. Just get the thing that you can afford. Now, a lot of people will also say things like, you know, you've got to record an episode zero and you've got to do a trailer. And I'm a big proponent of trailers and structure. And, you know, we've got a whole course, which is free. It's an anti-guru course. Don't even need an email. I won't promote it. But what I will say, the reason I say that is that in that, I talk about segments. I talk about everything. Like, I'm a big fan of structure. But what's the point? If you're just not going to do it, you know, if you see this thing and it looks too overwhelming and you just, it's too much, it, there's way too much. I, I just want to start a podcast, literally turn the mic on and talk about the thing that you love talking about. Get someone to ask you a question about it and off you go. And if you put that out, you will realize that you don't have to worry. The structure comes later. A great example of this is like when I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old, I was used to swing a seven iron around the field near my house. So it was two electrical pylons. Me and my friend Scott, we used to hit them. When it hit them, we used to hit balls between them. And no one ever said, your ball connection's shoddy. No one ever said, you're coming a little bit over the top, you're a bit steep. Or no one ever said, you've got to turn through your hips more. I was just like whacking the ball. It's only when you realize that you want to get serious or you want to get better at it, that you start looking at the things that you could do better. But if I take my daughter out to the golf course and I say to her, there's your first golf club. Make sure your angular attack is minus three with this seven iron and that your launch angle is perfect and you need this kind of RPM on your backspin. She'd be like, dad, I'm going back to mum because she's more fun. So that's the same with podcasting. You know, I would always just say, and this comes back to the confidence, competence, you know, all being predisposed through love. Love the thing, because all you need is one open question. You know, that's the art of good interviews. As you're demonstrating, you just give me the thing and I'll run with it because I love it. So yeah, you've got to do the same thing. Get your mom, get your dad, get your partner to ask you a question. You know, if someone put a microphone in front of me and someone said, right, why do you like Star Wars? That's an hour. <laughs> you know, that's a podcast. So... Is there something that makes a podcaster stand out like this? You can talk like five people and you can say that that fifth person, that's they would be a great podcast host. Can you tell? I think a great podcast host has got experience in going over the top. So what I mean by that is this. If you, you know, when you don't karaoke, have you done karaoke before? So you do karaoke, right? I don't know what your song is, but, you know, let's assume you pick and let's go for living on a prayer just because everyone sings it. It's loud. Everyone knows it. All right. Classic. So you pick a nice Bon Jovi song, you get up on stage and you think to yourself, I'm going to give it my all. And so you give it your all. You stand there, you sing it, you deliver it. It's pitch perfect. And what people see is, oh, that person's a good singer. You put the microphone in John Bon Jovi's hand or you put a mic and a mic stand in Freddie Mercury's hand. They do the singing. Because that's their job. It's like a plumber turning up and just doing the plumbing. That's their job. But what they do is they absolutely blow you away with everything around the song. And it's back to what we said earlier. If you give 100% when you are delivering anything vocally or visually, 
you will come across as giving 70%. And do you know why? Because that's the perception of other people. It's the age old thing on karaoke. You can be feeling it, but unless you're bouncing around going crazy and you know, they're just going to think, well, they're just, he's just singing a karaoke song. You know, it's not a performance. And it's the same for podcasting. You have to articulate everything. You have got to lift your voice. You've got to bring your voice down when you just, you know, I want to be a bit sneaky and say something I shouldn't do. You know, so you've really got to go to the extremes and to the levels. If you listen to any, it doesn't matter the type of podcast, listen to any type of podcast, whether it's Jordan Harbinger doing interviews, whether it's Aaron Mankey delivering a story in a narrative format, or whether it's a scripted audio drama like First Action Bureau or, or Doctor Death or something like that. It's acting. It's performing. And that's the difference. Now, yeah, granted, it might be the fifth person out of five that gets good at that and that is good at that. But the beauty of this is, is that if you love the thing that you talk about, that's not the bit you have to practice. And anyone can get good at the performing because that is just repetition and practice. That's just learning. And that's why that love is so important. Because if you've got to learn to love the thing that you're there to talk about, you can't learn everything else. You can't learn to become a great podcaster because you're too preoccupied with, hmm, do I really want to talk about this? And that's so vital. So yeah, the art of performance, that's what it's all about. Yeah. So I, I want to get a little bit more personal here towards as we get towards the end. And let's try to make these quicker answers. <laughs> I do talk. The end. All right. <laughs> so first thing, and I read this on your website and I love this. I don't remember where I saw it, but what came first for you? Brutal authenticity or success? Oh, authenticity. Yeah. By accident, by not really caring. I've got a problem with authority in that the, it's an inverse problem, actually. It's not a problem with authority. It's a problem with respecting everyone the same. And that never went down well with managers, but it did go down well when, you know, you're talking to a CEO that you're trying to sell a website to, and you're just like, look, mate, your idea is terrible. And he wants that because no one else does it. And that was just by accident. That was just me. So yeah, always, always, always the authenticity. Brutal authenticity. What was the last thing you changed your mind about? The last thing I changed my mind about was whether or not, oh yeah, it was earlier actually, whether or not to take the rain cover from my daughter's pram out with us. And I didn't think we needed it and we did. So we got it. <laughs> so you had it in your hand and you were going out, you were like, nah, nah, we don't need it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, good. That's bad time. Uh, that's, you know, you get wet. That's okay. You know, you dry off after that. And th this is actually one of my favorite questions to ask people because I think it sort of gives us insights into who you are. So is there anything that people either don't know or don't remember about you that you really want them to know and remember? Oh, that's a good question. I think a lot of it comes from, uh, yeah, probably that kind of where we started in podcasting in particular. I think that's a big thing from a work perspective. A lot of people forget that we did because of the pandemic and so on. A lot of people forget how much of that travel we did. A lot of the red eyes, you know, I sacrificed a heck of a lot and so did Kieran to do that. You know, we were everywhere at all times. There wasn't an event that we weren't at. And I think a lot of the time, certainly when we were going through the acquisition, a lot of people didn't remember that we'd done that. They were just like, we've had, certainly some people have come into the industry given themselves a voice and then sort of, you know, they've done that after the pandemic started. They sort of seen us as, you know, tech guys that came into podcasting and got an exit within a couple of years. What they never saw was just the 10 years preceding that. And that's always the thing. And it's, people are always surprised. We do it at podcast movement. Like people are always surprised by the sheer amount of people that we're just genuinely friends with because they don't remember that we did all that. We just do know these people now. That's that's how we met, you know, through Harry. And yeah. yeah, that's a big thing, I think. So that's that's probably the work answer, I think. 
Yeah, I love that. So just as we wrap here, how do people get in touch with you? How do they find out what you're up to and follow your next thing? Oh, just on Twitter. Here's a podcasting tip for you. Never give too many calls to action. Always the one. Just on Twitter, at Mr. Asquith. That's where I do all my engagement and it's where, I, uh, it's, it's where I'm most present and I can point you in the direction of anything else from there. So at Mr. Asquith on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate having you on. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. 